brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, unless you really do Where would we be without THC? We know the lying to us, just don't know to what degree Where would we be without THC? All right, dear people, if you haven't had one yourself, you should be aware by now that humanity has a long history of encounters with paranormal entities and a tale that might be as old as time itself. Today we call them extraterrestrials, in the British Isles they called them fairies, but stories of these mythical beings behind the veil exist around the world at every time depth and on every continent, and what's worse, they want our children. Yes people, you better get past those E.T. and Tinkerbell archetypes because these are not your mama's otherworldly entities, and of course it seems like there are many catalysts for these encounters, but the themes of kidnapping, interbreeding, genetic testing, and even hybridization seem to be the strongest branches on the supernatural tree. And while I still think the jury is out on just what these things are and what their deepest motivations might be, there is no doubt in my mind that intelligent beings exist that defy the physical world as we know it. Whether you get a quick glimpse of something strange in the woods or encounter beans on the astral plane after a healthy dose of something intoxicating, these things are there, and few have studied these encounters as studiously as today's returning guest Joshua Cutchin. Josh was here in 2016 talking about his first book, A Trojan Feast, the food and drink offerings of aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch. Then he returned a year later to get deep into his second book, The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural scents, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas. And today, we're getting weird with his third approach to paranormal entities with a subject that's darker than dark, Thieves in the Night, a brief history of supernatural child abductions. I told you they want our children. Here he is, my favorite tuba-tickling paranormal gumshoe, the king of weird words and brass beats, Joshua Cutchin. Welcome back to the higher side. How the hell are you? I'm doing great, man. It's so nice to be back here. A wonderful way to spend late August afternoon. (laughs) 
everything's just starting to change. The leaves down here are getting just a little bit of color on them. And it's like, yes, finally, the rest of the world is going to care about the things that I care about all year round. <laughs> <laughs> oh, seasons. Yes, that's something that uh, people experience outside of San Diego. I forgot about that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Those were the days. But, dude, I really love this book. Anyone who has heard your interviews knows that the first 10 minutes is usually just an avalanche of compliments and praise about how well-written and well-sourced your books seem to be. And I'm in full agreement when it comes to books in the paranormal or supernatural or more specifically fairy or cryptozoology space, obviously you can find a whole lot of cheesy, poorly written, slapped together money grabs. But all three of your books now make that section of my strange library seem so much more academic and I salute you for it. Well, I really appreciate it. You know, part of my philosophy is always that even if some of the information in my books goes bad, you can find out exactly where I found out about it. So it's <laughs> it's, it's less a collection of my thoughts and just trying to collate everybody else's thoughts. And I think that it's important to have some degree of academic standards when you're talking about this stuff so that you can point to where these things come from. Right. Sourcing is such a great way to offload responsibility. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it really, it really is. <laughs> as a host of a show like this, when I have to tell people about it who aren't familiar, I'm like, look, I just ask the questions. If you want to check it out, that's great. I'm just the question asker. Don't hold me accountable for what gets said. <laughs> Same kind of thing. But mm, to uh, quote Thieves in the Night, you start out by saying this book marks the first interdisciplinary attempt to compare paranormal child abduction from antiquity through the modern era. And maybe we should start by elaborating on that theme. What can you tell us about the process and the approach to this one compared to the others? We know a lot of my work is really trying to look at the similarities between a lot of this older folklore and what we would call the modern contact experience. Because I believe that at least in the contact experience, less so nowadays with lights in the sky, which I think I have a multitude of sources, but the actual contact experience between humans and otherworldly entities, I think, has been describing the same continuum of interaction since antiquity. But at the same time, there were a couple of different things that looking for analogs and really trying to make that comparison between older folklore and sort of the modern, for lack of a better term, alien abduction experience, because that's most of what people tend to have in this context nowadays. There are a couple things that didn't quite seem to jive. So I wanted to put my money where my mouth was and see if I could unpack the similarities between specifically this older sort of fairy folklore slash spirit folklore around the world and the modern alien hybrid program. Some people have taken some stabs at it in the past and have done a really good job setting up some stuff. But there's actually, as I found unpacking all this, there's a greater depth there to exactly how deep and resonant a lot of these parallels are. Before anybody, you know, jumps on me about saying that all aliens are fairies or all fairies are aliens, I don't think either of those is an applicable label. We might be looking sort of at something that's more akin to, you know, a Gordon White ecosystem of spirit model. Or we might be looking at something, you know, entirely alien in that original sense of the word, something that we can't even wrap our heads around. But what I am relatively certain of is that a lot of these contact experiences between us and the other world have really remained consistent for millennia. Right. I'm with you. I do think it's that blind men holding the elephant kind of thing. You get the fairy lore and you're like, oh, that's what this is. You get the ET stuff and you're like, oh, no, this is the, the box it goes in. But they're probably both just cultural layers that are just pieces of the puzzle or something that, you, like you say, is just kind of beyond our real understanding. 
And these are the best ways that we've been able to express it at different periods of time. No, yeah, it really seems to me like a lot of this really does, you know, recontextualize itself within the framework of culture. I mean, again, I'm setting aside the fact that I personally think that the actual phenomena of unidentified flying objects represents a constellation of things from misunderstood natural phenomena to misidentification to government black budget projects to also, in some cases, spirit phenomena or psi phenomena, also in a handful of cases, possible extraterrestrial intervention. But it's interesting to me that you know, a lot of the way that these interactions have always presented themselves in terms of the one-on-one human-to-entity interpretation has always been really defined by the culture and the times that that, that, that interaction takes place. Mm-hmm. And what about the, uh, the topic itself of child abduction by paranormal entities? Let's dive into that because you refer to the book as a brief history of that topic. Where does that trend start? What are some of the earliest points in that history? Well, it could be argued relatively easy that Australian Aboriginal lore was probably one of the earliest places where it did start, given that it's the oldest you know, civilization on Earth. They have a tradition of these beings called the Pimera Quetete. It's probably a horrible pronunciation, but that's my best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that in certain contexts, not only children, but also sometimes unborn children. But, you know, being sort of mired in the West, if you just look at the West, you'll find a lot of antecedents, particularly in the form of Lilith, who is an entity that, surprisingly enough, a lot of subsequent child abduction folklore can trace its roots back to Lilith, possibly a derivation of a Sumerian god, goddess Lamashtu, bird-footed and lion-headed, who was fond of stealing children and would take them and kill them through nursing. This goes back all the way to about 800 BC. And you'll find that motif of this Lamashtu deity somehow, in some form or fashion, was appropriated by this Judaic writers and was sometime around, I believe, the ninth century presented as Adam's first wife before Eve, also made of the dirt, who in some form or fashion debased herself. So certain traditions hold that she refused to straddle Adam during intercourse. She wanted to straddle Adam during intercourse rather than laying underneath him. And this was a great sin for which she was banished. And from then on, she produced this progeny of demons, Mm. which also sort of shared that child abduction proclivity. It's interesting. I find it really interesting that in some Icelandic traditions, Lilith was actually the one to spawn the fairies. And that's why the fairies always had a real affinity for taking children as well. But a lot of it starts with Lilith. You know, Moloch is another Canaanite deity who has some other attributes of child abduction, but it seems like a lot of this really stems back to Lilith, at least in the West. Moloch is not as popular in the popular consciousness. <laughs> in mm-hmm. the underground, it might be it's a little bit different, certainly. Yeah. But yeah, so those are really the two progenitors of this sort of motif as we know it in Western culture. Right on. Yeah, you're going deep. <laughs> and, uh, to talk about the synergy between fairies and aliens, one of the things I like most about your work It is talked about a little more these days, but you're pretty consistent with that theme. And I absolutely think both themes do have the same shape to them. To read from the book and give people an example of what I'm talking about, you write in one account, Two boys on a hill were enjoying a summer day when a sensation of peace settled over them. Hearing a strange voice, the boys sat up and saw a pair of odd men in shimmering clothes conversing in a strange language and accompanied by a bright light. They neared, switching to English, to tell the boys they came from far away and knew the future. They urged the lads to sleep. 
After awaking and walking home, the boys realized they had been missing for 24 hours. Anyone would be forgiven for assuming this is a tale of the fairies. In reality, this story comes from the 1940s and is cited as evidence of UFOs rather than fae folk contact. It all depends on the prism which we observe the phenomenon. And I think that is just such a great example. And so many stories have elements of both. But I guess if you were to expand on the depth of those similarities a bit more, what would you say? Well, you know, I certainly feel like that particular case was collected by Jenny Randall's great ufologist who's starting to make the rounds again. But I feel like it needs to be said that a lot of these stories, a lot of these interactions, this eyewitness testimony, if you take it on face value, removed from the context in which it appears, either, you know, an antiquated book studying folklore of the British Isles or a modern book on ufology, you do see these similarities. So in addition to obviously the main thing we're talking about today, abduction of children, you have the motif of missing time, which is present both in visitors to fairyland and in the UFO experience, UFO experiencers or rather alien abduction experiencers to be a little bit more clear. We'll often notice that vast amounts of time have passed when they only felt that it was only a few minutes or only a few hours, they'll actually find a giant chunk of time. Well, visitors to Fairyland might return home and find out that years had passed. You know, a lot of times you'll see this light phenomena associated with both phenomena. There are certain sects who think that there are certain sectors of ufology, I should probably say, who think that there are underground alien bases. Well, that was where Fairyland traditionally was. You see these entities carrying wands in a lot of similar cases. They both can paralyze their witnesses. You might be drawn out to a lonely location right before your abduction. Well, in fairy lore, that was called being pixie-led. You know, yesterday's fairy rings are today's crop circles in some sense, even though we could, you know, go off on a tangent about how many crop circles are man-made and how many aren't. Motivically, it's still there. Fairies would pinch and prod and poke their victims while aliens perform surgery. Fairies were even involved in livestock mutilation, which is something that we don't really consider. But a lot of these similarities have been pointed out ad nauseum by some really great thinkers like Jacques Vallée, like... Kevin Aspinall, like Chris Albeck, but there are some other things that haven't gotten so much attention, like the propensity of fairy lore to talk about these small entities supervised by a taller fairy queen. Well, you see that in the alien abduction lore as well, where you have these shorter greys and this taller worker grave being supervisory. You know, it's interesting. In addition to the alien hybridization program, which is something that I really wanted to try to reconcile with fairy lore, the other thing that really was always stuck with me that I couldn't explain was, you know, was there an antecedent for alien implants in fairy lore? I looked and looked and looked, and I really couldn't find anything until one day I happened upon the phenomena of the fairy blast, which is sort of the same shared German etymology between blast, blustery, and blister. They're all the sort of shared idea, which is this idea that the fairies, who often traveled on the wind or in storms, might hit you with a blast of wind because you have sort of offended them in some sense, and you would develop a boil or a blister. And if you look at the tales of what were inside these, you'd often find anything ranging from bits of stone to sometimes bits of bone or ceramics or any number of foreign objects. To me, that's a pretty clear parallel to the implant phenomena, but I was really shocked to find out that there's no shortage of stories detailing string coming out of these fairy blast blisters, hmm. which you can see a sort of comparison with this modern phenomena of Morgellons disease, which... You know, it's debatable as to whether or not it's an actual condition, but nonetheless, the ufological community has seized upon it as a possible side effect of alien abduction. That seems to be an exact description of the same phenomena, this, this sort of pustule with some string poking out of it. So the similarities really run deep. I was sort of 
would tiptoe around this earlier in my earlier books, but I'm of the idea now that pretty much anything that you find in alien abduction lore will be mirrored in fairy abduction lore and vice versa. I really do think that it's it looks and smells too much like a duck. You know, if it walks like a duck mm. and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So I think that they're describing the same thing. Again, I don't think either of them have it right. I don't think that little people is the answer. I don't think that extraterrestrials is the answer, but I do think they're both describing something that is the same thing and has an objective reality to it. Mm. I agree with you, man. It's like small humanoids with a green, gray color, orbs, teleportation, missing time, the whole breeding genetics thing. I mean, you're right. It's very similar. And I was even thinking about the idea of wands and the motif of aliens having long, thin fingers with a glowing tip. I mean, maybe that's just in Spielberg's E.T., but I feel like I've seen that depicted elsewhere. And you could almost mistake that for a little creature holding a long wand with a glowing tip. I mean, so many things can be considered overlays there. Well, you know, there's actually no shortage of entity encounters, close encounters of the third kind, where people describe a literal wand being held by an E.T. And oftentimes they'll point it at a person and this will paralyze them. Well, you know, if someone was paralyzed in Ireland in 161750, they'd say, oh, well, you were hit by elf shot or fairy shot, or you were touched by the elf stroke, which is this idea that you would be incapacitated and your actual, if not physically, you'd be taken away, your spirit would be taken away to fairyland. Mm. And so what about the fairies motivations for taking children i mean are there enough commonalities to start to understand what drives this behavior something beyond just creating mischief well fairies would take a lot of individuals they were often fond of taking musicians as well and adult women but they loved to take children and there have been various reasons ascribed to why fairies would want to take children some of them a bit more salacious, like possibly taking their blood. find that rarely, but it does come up every now and then. Sometimes you will find that they are taken to be bond slaves, especially in the case of musicians. They're taken away to fairyland to play for a fairy wedding or a fairy party or something along those lines. But the most common thing that you find time and again is that they are taken for breeding stock, specifically because the race of fairies is their stock has sort of dwindled. They are a sickly race that needs this injection of new blood from outside of their own inbred community to revitalize the race. Which obviously, again, sounds just like a lot of these modern alien abduction tales in terms of the reasons that these alien entities will tell people why they're being taken, why their sperm and ova are being taken, or even sometimes, you know, fully formed fetus. But it also sort of serves a dual role. So part and parcel of this, another reason behind me wanting to write this book was because there isn't a great English language reference book for the changeling phenomena. There is one out of print book called Der Wechselbalg, but it's only in German and it's extremely hard to find. I think they're literally like, you could probably count on two hands how many copies there are. So I sort of wanted to compile as much of this information as I could in one spot. And the concept of the changeling is that the fairies would come along and take your child, typically unbaptized, and they would take your child away and leave something in its place. Now, what was the something? Well, least common would be like a dead child. A little bit more common was the phenomena of what we call stocks and fetches, which are a simulacrum of a human being, typically a log or a stump cloaked in glamour to appear like a human child. But a little bit more common than that was they would actually take a healthy human baby and leave behind a sick fairy baby. 
But most commonly, you would find that they would take a healthy human baby and leave behind an older fairy man. And I say older fairy man because typically it was boys who were taken, which suggests that there might be some folkloric sexism going on. Mm. But in both the latter two cases, the replacement of a human child with a fairy baby or a human child with an elderly fairy, there's sort of a dualistic reason behind this abduction going on. So not only do they get to take the human child to fairyland to sort of help their race become a little bit more robust, but on the other end of that is this reciprocity of the fairy child, in the case of fairy children, the fairy child actually getting to have human milk. Fairies, historically, were known to eat detritus, leaves, sticks, and twigs, just junk, empty trash, empty debris that was cloaked with glamour to appear appealing. Well, using this sort of same logic, it was long held that fairy milk itself was a sham as well. So the only milk that could actually sustain a fairy baby was human milk. So that's the case when a fairy baby was left behind as a changeling. When an older fairy man was left behind as a changeling, then it was sort of a hospice arrangement almost mm -hmm. for this you know, elderly fairy to live out its last days amongst its human foster parents. So there's sort of a spectrum of motivations behind this, at least in the British Isles. Now, of course, fairy lore itself has a lot of similarities to a lot of different cultures around the world, specifically this idea of shorter entities that like to take children, but there's also some explicit parallels to changelings in other parts of the world, specifically thinking of the Jinn tradition of the Middle East, and also amongst the Yoruba peoples of Africa, they have a phenomenon known as Ebiku, which sounds very, very much like the changeling myth itself. Mm-hmm. And you are right. The mechanics of changeling encounters, that is something... I really did not know much about. I just kind of knew the general shape that sometimes there was some kind of replacement. But yeah, you really go deep into all of it. And kind of like in A Trojan Feast, I really thought that was interesting that sometimes there would be enchanted piles of sticks or dirt or logs, you know, just like you mentioned, like people would be mystified to think that was a child or it would somehow work as a viable replacement in the tro in a trojan feast you talk about that a lot with food as well that once the spell wore off they'd realize it was just mud and worms and shit and i just think that's a really interesting parallel yeah it is really interesting i think in the welsh tradition that welsh changing the plintinuid is what it was called would actually appear at first to be a healthy baby and over time it would get more and more hideous and sort of reveal its true form and Eventually, whatever these changelings were, they would typically be described as having a wizened face and tiny arms and would eat and eat and eat, but never put on any weight. All they would do is cry. They'd be unhappy. Sometimes they would have large heads and large eyes and sparse hair. Sometimes they would have fangs or beards, just something that infants definitely shouldn't have. <laughs> and of course, you know, to be clear, I think that a healthy amount of realism and skepticism sort of rears its head at this juncture because just as I feel like the Unexplained aerial phenomena has a multitude of answers. I think that changeling phenomena itself has a multitude of answers as well. And I think that there might be some genuine supernatural phenomena at play. But it's obvious that a giant portion of these are tragically enough describing children who had disabilities. I think that's pretty unambiguous if you look at sort of the historical accounts of a lot of these children, too. As if the subject matter wasn't dark enough, <laughs> then you take this left-hand turn into this justification of infanticide that you find in a lot of these cultures where resources were scarce. Yes, that was going to be the next thing I brought up, really, is the idea that we could be dealing with undiagnosed medical conditions like MS or even autism, where a child's development changes and then the parents say, well, 
that's it. The fairies took my kid and replaced it with this half-broken duplicate. And that sounds so messed up, but it does have to be considered as an answer for at least some of the stories. Right, yeah. As you know, I dedicate a chapter in the book to just sort of looking at what were the best candidates for this. And there are some that are really, really compelling. And there's no shortage of possible suggested reasons or suggested birth defects that might have caused some of these stories of changelings. Obviously, anything that's onset after birth where, you know, it appears to be a normally functioning child that sort of regresses is suspect. You know, but you'll look at stuff like people have proposed metabolic syndromes, Down syndrome, rickets, mesenteric disease, Hunter's syndrome, Hurler's syndrome, homocystinuria. Autism is a big candidate these days, especially regressive autism, where a child appears to be developing naturally and then all of a sudden has sort of these progressive setbacks. People say that some of the sing-songy rhymes that changelings would sometimes say might be, you know, a symptom of the playful speech that some people on the spectrum tend to engage with. Their misreading of social cues, both changelings and some people on the autistic spectrum have some difficulty with that as well. So I think that's compelling. Honestly, some of the most compelling ones, spina bifida, cerebral palsy, progeria come to mind. Progeria is one that I think is a great fit for the changeling phenomena. It's a great fit in terms of symptoms. It's not a great fit in terms of how prevalent it is. I mean, there are only like 100 people worldwide at any given time who suffer from it. But it's a disorder where people afflicted remain short for their entire lives with wrinkled and dry skin. Their tooth development is delayed. They have a high-pitched voice and generally very small limbs. And all these things really map onto the changeling story quite well. Mm -hmm. You know, but to sort of cast a, a little bit of light onto the implications of this, one of the things that's a stat that I used to sort of put in perspective how serious this problem was of changelings and of justifying the killing of children. I mean, you've got to look at sort of what, especially Ireland, you know, where a lot of this fairy lore comes from is Ireland. You've got to look at sort of what that particular island has been through over the course of the centuries. There's a book that is written by Elaine Farrell called A Most Diabolical Deed. And what she did is she did a survey and analysis of infanticide in Irish society from 1850 to 1900. And she looked at deaths from children who were just under three years old. So you got to remember that for us Americans, this is an island about the size of Indiana. And in that 50-year period, she found 4,645 cases of children who are murdered. Now, of course, this isn't, you know, it means it wasn't a 51-year period. That's just a 50-year period, and that's just children less than three years old. So if they were three and a half years old, didn't make the cut. So that really shows you how common this was at the time in a society that's really starved for resources. I mean, if you look at what the birth of a developmentally disabled child would have meant at the time, it would have meant an extra mouth to feed that wouldn't contribute to putting food on the table. So it's an extremely sobering facet to this whole phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yes, it has to be considered that possibly fairies were sometimes used as supernatural scapegoats for much more practical crimes, maybe even child trafficking in medieval days. I mean, who knows? Obviously, it's probably cover for a lot of nefarious things that are quite practical. Oh, 100%. I mean, there was actually, even in certain parts of the Americas, a fairy would sometimes be used as a euphemism for a prostitute. You know, a lot of what we would call deviant behavior, including sexual assault, molestation, infidelity, incest, abuse, these were all sort of put off on the fairies interfering somehow with the life of someone. So, you know, oftentimes, again, changelings were not just children. Sometimes grown women would be taken as changelings. 
in that case, you had every right to beat your wife because she was a changeling. Of course, you'll notice that there's not an adult male component to changelings. That doesn't happen very often. It's either children or, you know, adult females. So I think that says something about the lore as well, the fact that this could be utilized as a weapon by those in power to keep other people under their thumb. Absolutely. The authorities and the Empire and the alphabet agencies have definitely used supernatural beliefs before, like leaned into them to cover mm -hmm. for their own stuff. Nick Redfern's written about that. So it's definitely a factor. These things can't be discounted. But getting beyond the misidentified medical conditions and the crimes, when you have cases that seem like more genuine abduction, to quote the book again, you say, Fairies were not indiscriminate thieves. There were circumstances rendering some children more susceptible to their grasp. What are some of those circumstances? Well, you know, as we'd mentioned, being male was probably one of the primary risks as a child. Typically, they like fair-haired children. This idea that actually one of the reasons that they chose fair-haired children was because the fairies themselves tended to be swarthy and of dark complexion. They wanted some of that fair-haired or those fair features to be incorporated in their bloodline. Sometimes even certain days that you were born on could bring bad luck. Not only sort of days within the church calendar, but also just days of the week, like Fridays were bad news. If you're born on a Sunday, that was great, but Friday is bad news. You know, depending on the culture, there were certain periods of time that would be most vulnerable. In the British Isles, it was between three and nine days. In Slavic countries, where sometimes witches were the ones actually creating these changelings, it was 40 days. You know, in Germany, it was Germanic countries, it was about six weeks or so. It's interesting because there were similar periods of time where children were most vulnerable in a lot of Abrahamic thought. They were vulnerable to Lilith taking them as well. So you sort of see this idea of a prescribed period of time when children are most vulnerable. The changeling myth itself does not seem to predate Christianity in the British Isles specifically. So it should be no surprise that one of the biggest factors to putting a child at risk for having a changeling created or placed in their stead was not being baptized. Hmm. And of course, from a folkloric standpoint, you know, this is tying into this concept of liminality. I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, but in case they don't, liminality means neither one nor the other. So I've graduated from high school, but I'm not in college yet. The between space, which is archetypally where the trickster archetype tends to dwell they tend to be the entity of the threshold. This is why we have trolls under bridges. You sell your soul to play guitar better at the crossroads to the devil at night. You know, it's this idea of this in-between space. And in that sense, the time between birth and baptism in a Christian society is a liminal period. You're born into the world, but not born into the church. So generally from a folkloric perspective, that's considered the reason behind that. And there's no shortage of tales of children who were actually supposedly taken specifically because they were not baptized. There's one story from Patrick Kennedy's Legendary Fictions of the Irish Celts who talks about a woman from Grange who had a child born while the father was at sea, and she wanted to postpone the christening because she wanted the father to be there. But time and time again, she had to postpone it because he never returned. And of course, all of her neighbors were sort of watching her askance because they were really concerned about what this meant in terms of her child becoming a changeling and being taken by the Dean She, the fairies. And after 18 months, according to the story, there was this great rushing sound in the house as if a number of birds were coming down the chimney, and it sounded as if they flew out again. And from then on, the child was very sick and irritable. And, of course, the neighbors suspected that it had been taken by the she, by the fairies. <laughs> Man. 
That's interesting. I love the idea of between spaces and how that motif can play out in physical spaces, in traditions, in all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's interesting that baptism would be a factor. Maybe there's some superstition there, but man, if it is, well, I know I'm safe, but my kids will be at great risk. (laughs) Good luck, kids. Well, you know, there's two thoughts, right? The first one that I have to sort of warn myself against is this what I like to call liminal pareidolia because I think that if you start looking for liminal spaces you'll see them everywhere and sometimes I don't think that's quite the best way to describe some of these different states you know some of these different places and whatnot I mean you could start seeing traffic islands as a liminal space which is <laughs> it's kind of mm-hmm. true but it's not you aren't supposed to expect unexplained phenomena to manifest on traffic islands but the other thing that I would say is that if you look at ritual A sacrifice that means nothing to you means nothing to the other world. So I would suspect that if baptism meant nothing to you, then it would mean nothing to the other world. So I dare say that if there was someone who was not a practicing Christian, they would not have that same sort of superstition of their child being abducted or being most vulnerable to abduction between birth and the christening. Fair enough. And I think that speaks to the consciousness aspect that you just can't fool this stuff. Like, if it means something to you, it means something to you. And that's an internal, deep type of thing. And for whatever reason, it has a real effect. And I also wanted to ask you about the types of hoops that people would go through to get their kids back in the cases where they actually did. You say that mounting a physical rescue was next to impossible. And you say that there is a compelling argument to be made that all child retrieval involved ceremony, ritual, or magic. And that's my wheelhouse, man. I love that stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so if you look at the things that arise around any protective lore, but especially fairy lore as well, you'll see a lot of similar things like iron was a big thing. Iron being placed in the bed of a child would help safeguard them against being taken Sharp implements were the same thing. And of course, you see expressions of the Christian cross and the pagan salt. These were all things. But if none of these things worked and you were stuck with a changeling, there were a lot of different things that you could do. All of them really fall under the blanket of abuse because the idea was that, well, if this is one of the fairy people, then I'm going to abuse it until the other fairies see one of their own being abused and will rush in to rescue it. And generally in these cases, I always find it really interesting whenever there is a restoration of the original child, it's never really witnessed. It's not like the fairies come in and actually make an exchange. It's like people turn their backs and all of a sudden this child that was a changeling is now the original child, which I think speaks to a consciousness aspect of, you know, if there's something objectively super normal going on, it is happening within the child rather than being an actual physical exchange. But setting that aside, children would be abandoned. They would be beaten. They would be sometimes literally cooked. Sometimes you would have hot tongs. They would pinch the child's toe with these red hot tongs, or you'd brand them. You'd splash urine in the face of children sometimes. It seems like one of the least offensive of these methods was to employ some degree of magical practice. You have these people in all cultures who are sort of known as fairy doctors, cunning men, cunning women, who actually would have all the answers the solutions to retrieve your child. You actually see this in certain African cultures as well. And these fairy men, these fairy women, would actually prescribe certain methods that would be foolproof ways of getting your child back, and these must all be, you know, followed to the T. For example, in Wales, it was advised to find a black hen and cook it, feathers and all, above 
a burning piece of peat, and after all the feathers fell off, your exchanged child would be restored. Hmm. In Cornwall, there are, are a series of standing stones that are sort of circular. And if you pass your changeling child through these stones called the Minantol, which is probably a horrible pronunciation, so forgive me, my Cornish hmm. friends, <laughs> you would actually have the pixies who had taken your child. As soon as the child passed through the stone, these benevolent pixies that dwell at this particular spot would re-exchange your child. Sometimes in certain cultures, you would draw a circle around yourself and your family, and you'd say, anything inside this ring that is mine, may the Lord protect, but outside, your power may prevail. And you'd actually sweep everything inside the circle out the door, and supposedly your child would be restored. You know, there was one particular Celtic ritual that was a supplication to the she, where you'd actually put your child on the rubbish heap, the manure heap outside the home. And you would basically have this form of litany where you'd go through and you'd actually call out for the fairies to restore your child. Similarly, being sort of magical creatures themselves, fairies were obsessed with deals and contracts and pacts. So if you actually offered something of your own, the fairies would have to, you know, if you said, you know, this is yours and what you have is mine, they would actually, for example, take your hat and give you back the child as well. So there was no one real prescription for resolving this, but it seemed that the magical component definitely reared its head from time to time. Yes, I think that's a really interesting aspect to the whole thing. And let's talk about where these kids go. Because another quote from the book on this is where you say, It was commonly held that fairy abductees were taken to fairyland. But where is this magical place? Most who returned had extreme difficulty recalling the specifics of this marvelous land. If Fairyland had a physical location, it was most certainly underground. Germanic and Scandinavian texts were explicit about their subterranean realm. And if anyone loves a good story about subterranean realms, it's me. Of course, I'm way open to the idea of a non-physical realm as well. But if we wanted to stick to the underground idea just for a minute, because I like it, can you elaborate on the details of the stories or ideas that these beings are subterranean? Yes. So it's sort of a ball of twine to untangle here. <laughs> so typically this concept of fairyland being underground finds its precedent in the fact that any Neolithic dwelling place was generally considered to be a fairy place. So burial grounds, Iron Age ring forts, all these things were places where fairies dwelt. And a lot of these places, especially the ring forts in Ireland, had these underground passageways known as souterrain. And these passageways were, depending on who you speak to, used either for resource storage or actually as an escape route. But in the folklore of the area, it got tied up in this concept of the entrance to fairyland. Obviously, in the case of burial mounds, there are passages in a lot of these burial mounds as well that could also be seen as these entrances to fairyland. Once people got to fairyland, it was generally considered a very beautiful place. If somehow you would have the glamour that we had mentioned earlier removed, it might be revealed to be a dank and terrifying cavern of some sort. But that was sort of the general consensus is that you couldn't just walk into one of these passages and find that you'd had to have some sort of fairy escort in a sense, for the most part. It becomes a little bit difficult because a lot of times the term taken one of the places that we get the term taken when someone passes away, you know, he was taken from us, so-and-so and so-and-so, is because someone could be in a state of debilitating disease. They could be bedridden 
in conscious, but they could also be taken by the fairies, as if some aspect of their consciousness or their soul or their spirit was actually away with the fairies. Similarly, someone who was mentally disabled might have been believed to be taken by the fairies as well. This idea that there's sort of a duality of existence, both in our world and in fairyland as well. So it becomes a little bit difficult. There does seem to be sort of a non-locality to it, but there are definitely places that seemed to be regarded as portals to fairyland. One of the places to Tirnanog was on one of the hills adjacent to Loch Gur in County Limerick. I mean, you find places like that all across the countryside. I believe, if memory serves, Silbury Hill in England is also generally considered to be a location that you could find a portal into fairyland, but it's always, always subterranean. Interestingly enough, you will find cases here and there where people are taken to round rooms. <laughs> There's one story that's from Lady Gregory, I believe, who is, who was rather, I should say, an excellent collector of Celtic mythology, who talked about an individual who was taken to a round room that didn't have any particular source of illumination, and a taller fairy queen came up and touched a wand to her breast and asked her to breastfeed a fairy child, which, of course, smells of the abduction experience. In some cases, you actually had to take an ointment and rub it on your eye in order to see fairyland. So that also helps to explain why if you were just happening to find your way into one of these underground passageways in one of these ancient human settlements that you couldn't just go ahead and see fairyland. You actually needed a fairy ointment to place on your eye. Hmm. That's interesting. And man, Lady Gregory, my old high school nickname. Haven't heard that in a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, you know, when it comes to underground stuff, I just... I'm always intrigued by subterranean realms, hollow earth. And I had Mike Mott here once a long time ago, and he made the point that this rich lore is always so associated with the culture of the British Isles. And if you were some paranormal entity conducting some type of genetic experimentation or hybrid program, islands create a pretty natural control for keeping those people pinned in. And I thought that was just a provocative idea as well. And that is an interesting take. I'm familiar with Mike and his work. You know, I think that in the motif of descending and having to put some sort of ointment on your eyes, obviously that ties into, I personally think, the idea of altered states and the psychedelic experience. But also, I'm going to say this, people are going to think that I'm reducing it to psychology, but I'm not. Patrick Harper, who's a great thinker, wrote a fantastic book called Demonic Reality in addition to some other different texts that are looking at a lot of this stuff from a sort of psychological angle. Talks about the fact that, you know, there's always in a lot of these cases a motif of the subterranean, sort of like the shadow self. In other words, you know, lake monsters retreat beneath the waves, you know. <laughs> the fairies live underneath fairyland. There's always this motif of something going on below our world and sort of this idea that it's almost a reflection of our unconscious selves, which, again, doesn't mean that I don't think that there isn't an objective reality to these things. I think that these things are deeply tied into our own psychology in a lot of ways. And I think sometimes they speak to us in metaphor and dream logic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Allegories and archetypes are so misunderstood in mainstream culture, barely even understood, if at all. And they have huge effects on us, I think. And I am probably, if I had to put my money on it, going to say that this is some non-physical plane. That would be the more likely thing for Fairyland because there's just too many odd details that surround these stories that defy materialism. 
but you know, at the same time, there's that really confounding thing. And actually, speaking of Patrick Harper, he does a really good job of providing a possible solution to this. But it's the confounding thing of whatever these things are, they tend to leave some sort of physical trace behind. You know, I mean, we talked about the idea of the fairy blast earlier, but also, I mean, looking at fairy lore, there's no shortage of anomalous fairy artifacts, including tiny shoes and little vests made out of mouth leather of all things. Like hmm. I can't imagine somebody actually taking the time to skin a mouse to create a little tiny fairy vest. <laughs> Does that mean that I think they're literally tiny little people running around? No, I don't. But I think that there's something about whatever this is that, well, I think psi phenomena is a really good analog, right? I mean, is psychic phenomena physical in a materialist sense? No, it's internalized, but it can still have physical impacts on our environment. I think that there's a lesson to be taken away from that when you're looking at all these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that missing time element earlier, and I really love what you point out, which is that in fairy encounters, sometimes this missing time was years or even decades or a lifetime. And in alien encounters, it's usually a few hours, maybe a couple days. And I love that detail about that scale of missing time being so different because I recently had Laird Scranton here and he was comparing different cosmologies around the world and the makeup of the spirit realm. And he got into an esoteric Buddhism description of our world and the spirit world being intertwined like a double helix with time running as a sort of waveform through them, oscillating between being more in sync versus less in sync, time moving faster and then going slower in different cyclical eras, which you know, could also facilitate periods of more or less contact. But you could broadly look at this thing and say, maybe 12,000 years ago, things were so aligned that these spiritual teachers are coming down to Gobekli Tepe and having regular sessions with people. Fast forward down the timeline to fairy encounters and missing time can be decades. Come forward to ET encounters and missing time just a few hours or days. I don't know. There could be something in there that relates to what Laird was saying or the model of our reality. No, I think a lot of what Laird is speaking to, especially in terms of the way that he frames it in his work related to Dogon and Maori cosmology, I think he's on to something really profound there. You know, sometimes I wonder, even if just in the context of the UFO era, that it's not part of the reason that the flavor of the contact experience has changed. I mean, it's almost like in the contactee era of the 50s and 60s, if there is any sort of reality to that, which I contend that there is, at least to some degree, it started out very peaceful and very voluntary and like, hey, come along, we have some stuff that we need to tell you. And by like the late 70s and early 80s, it was like, okay, well, that's not working. <laughs> you know, whatever we're doing now, you're not listening to us. So we have to get a little bit more forceful and involuntary. I think that if you look at the parallelism that you see in a lot of these things and a lot of the ways that they're expressed is really important because not only does the modern context experience, it's either going to be a direct analog or it's going to be an insightful inverse. Patrick Harper, again, to quote something that he said, which I think is incredibly insightful, is that, you know, there's this longstanding tradition of this exodus of the fairies motif. Tolkien put this into his Lord of the Rings books with the passing of the elves across the sea. And it's literally going back to Chaucer, is one of the first references to the fairies leaving the British Isles. And there are plenty of sightings of fairies packing up their belongings and leaving. And this sort of tradition of, the, oh, the fairies aren't as round as much as they used to be. You hear that all the time in a lot of these different collections of anecdotes and whatnot. Patrick Harper 
had the profound insight that fairies are always going, going, but never gone. Mm. Whereas our extraterrestrial brothers are always coming, coming, but never here, <laughs> which I thought was a really, really insightful little way that this phenomenon has sort of inverted itself. And Patrick's a great thinker, so no surprise that he came up with that. But sometimes you have to look at this in an upside down sort of topsy-turvy way. Yeah, I really like that quote. And it is also synergistic with that Laird Scranton motif that it was strong, it was potent, and then it got less so, and then maybe we're on the incline again now, but it's never a full overlap. But yeah, that is uh, really interesting, man. I like that. Also, just to flesh out the idea that supernatural beings taking children is a theme that does wrap around the world. Tell us about some of those cross-cultural examples that probably describe the same type of phenomenon. Well, one of the primary ones that shouldn't really be surprised because it's coming from an Abrahamic religion anyway is the jinn. You can basically do a one-to-one -one correlation between the jinn and the fairies. Some people actually even suggest that there's a Persian term, pharaoh, that is where the term fairy comes from, that the phenomena was first described in the Middle East. I'm not so sure about that, but either way, the jinn eat detritus, they hang around old ruins. Well, that's what Iron Age ring forts are. They're frightened by iron, and they have changeling lore that's basically an exact match for fairy lore of the British Isles. It was very common in Ireland to dress a young boy as a girl. Sometimes you'll find this even represented in some art from the time, but the generally held folkloric reason for this was because it would fool the fairies into thinking, well, we don't want a girl, we want a boy to abduct. Well, in the Middle East, it was actually common to dress boys as girls as well, to confound the jinn. If you look at some of these uh, methods for retrieving your child, it sounds right out of the British Isles. You know, I mentioned abandoning your children in the British Isles as a means of getting your child restored. Sometimes you'd literally leave an infant overnight in a grave to hopefully have your child return to you from the fairies. Well, mm. similarly, in Islamic belief, you would leave a child in the cemetery overnight to have the jinn re-exchange them. But again, one of the most common things was to abuse it. And there was an example of a Muslim man who suspected his child of being a changeling, and the changeling ate everything in sight, didn't age at all, and was just sickly. And finally, he ended up beating the child and demanding that it return his child back. And according to the story, the jinn actually returned their original human child. So it's really interesting. That's one of the most profound ones. A little bit more nuanced is this tradition that I mentioned among the Yoruba called the Abiku, people from the Igbo of Nigeria actually have an analog to this called Ogbanji, but it's generally the same phenomena. These abiku are elemental spirits that tend to hang around jungles and paths and dung heaps. And it was said that pregnant women should avoid the spots at sunrise or, you know, at certain periods of the day, they should avoid these spots because the abiku might actually come and take up residence in the mother's womb and sort of inhabit the fetus of the child. And this abiku actually made a pledge in the other world, to deprive the parents of all their riches, all their mortal riches. That's sort of the goal of the Abiku, because, again, sort of a Laird Scranton thing of the real world having a mirror in the spirit world. If mortal wealth was accumulated in the mortal world, that would translate to spirit wealth for the Abiku. So basically, once it was born, the goal for the Abiku was to be as sickly and as obnoxious as possible. And so the parents would actually realize that, oh no, our child's been taken over. They would consult. Babalawo, which was the uh, Yoruba term for a fairy doctor, and would actually 
realize that the Abiku was in their child and actually start dedicating their property, their homes, their money, their livestock, all in the name of hopefully getting their child back. Inevitably, these Abiku would pass away. Sometimes you might be able to catch them before death. They'd stand up and stretch to their full height, which you find actually in some Icelandic stories of Icelandic changing, stretching, and revealing their whole height when no one thinks they're looking. But in almost every case, these Abiku children would pass away, and then all the mortal money and the mortal goods that had been pledged to it would have manifested in the spirit world at that time, and the Abiku would go on to another set of families to do it. Interestingly enough, sort of like with fairy lore, placing iron rings around the children's feet or putting bells on their ankles might drive off the Abiku. Of course, you know, iron is a worldwide means of protecting from the spirit world. But it's interesting, too, that this is an awful thing to talk about, but it's another, you know, this idea of child abuse being a cure for this changeling phenomena was actually sometimes advised to put incisions in the child's body and stuff in peppers and spices to make the Abiku suffer pain and leave. Oh my god. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's dark. This book takes you to some dark places, that's for sure. So those are two of the ones that are quite similar analogs. I mentioned earlier, certain Aboriginal tribes had this tradition of the Pumerakwetefe, these spirits of the land that would appear as sort of shadows were, you know, these fleeting glimpses to adults and were primarily seen by children and animals. They could be mischievous, like fairy folk. They could be large or small, often like the fairy folk as well. But there is at least one entity among these called Pankelanki, I think it was called, which actually would steal infants because she could never birth any of her own. She lacked a womb herself. Another interesting analog that you'll find is the Wala of Papua New Guinea that were said to be helpful spirits, but if they were offended, they could actually enter a mother's womb and replace the child and possibly in some cases cause miscarriage. And one of the ones that I found really interesting was the Jamaican Duffy tradition, which has got to be an import of British fairy belief. But it's this idea that these are ancestral spirits who the males among them will rape and impregnate women while the Females among them will often cause what is known as false belly, which is the Jamaican term for miscarriage, or that actually replace the child's body itself with pieces of livestock or lizards or tadpoles or something along those lines. Again, these motifs keep on repeating themselves over and over again, no matter where you are. And that's just a little sample. I mean, it's pretty much every indigenous culture. Well, every inhabited continent has an indigenous culture. That has that sort of changeling analog. Yeah, including Native Americans, too. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. You cover Japan, Southeast Asia, South America, Africa, Native Americans, Papua New Guinea, Indigenous Australians. It is everywhere. And these cultures aren't trading stories at the time depths that these stories seem to be emerging. I mean, these are long-held traditions, real concerns about paranormal entities stealing children. This is something that's baked into our reality somehow. That makes it so much more interesting. Yeah, my favorite ones are when you find a Native American belief that sounds straight out of both Continental and British Isles fairy belief. The Catawba Indians of the Carolinas talk about the Yehasuri, which are the wild Indians. They are these short little entities who live underground and eat trash. They braid horses' manes, which you'll find in a lot of especially French fairy folklore is that if a fairy has its mane braided, that's because the fairies have come in in the middle of the night. 
but they also love to take children as well. They would typically take children for an entire week and then eventually return them. It's interesting. There was uh, at least one account that I found of a child who became a tribal medicine man, the problematic term, but a spiritual healer after being taken by the Yehasuri, by the wild Indians. And you'll find this motif of people coming back from the other world, people coming back from near-death experiences, people coming back from alien abduction and people coming back from fairy abduction having either some sort of actual physical healing abilities or a desire to become spiritual healers or spiritual people in general. It's a recurring motif that you find time and again. Right. I was going to bring that up. It's really fascinating because it seems to be pretty prevalent, and it also comes in in some other semi-connected realms like entheogen breakthrough experiences, near-death experience. It makes you curious what this is. Maybe it's just being confronted with something non-physical and realizing that the world is bigger than what you see with your eyes. I mean, I could see that taking anybody over the spiritual edge, but maybe it is all connected to a similar phenomenon too. Yeah, there's something about touching the other side, whatever that means, that really inspires you to feel this way. And I think that one of the things that in popular ufological discourse that doesn't come up enough is the shared similarity between the post-experience lifestyles of the shaman, of the alien abductee, of the fairy abductee, of the near-death experiencer. There's a real similarity there. I mean, sometimes even just being touched by fairies would encourage people to become priests. There was a case from Wirt Sykes's research of the lady's name was Jeanette Francis, I believe. And she was actually sleeping with her child on her chest in the middle of the night and felt some sort of unseen force tugging at the child. And she's one of the few people who actually was able to wrestle her child back from the fairies. And that particular infant, when he grew up, ended up becoming a priest. One of the more famous cases was the case of Anne Jeffries, who was a young lady who fell into a trance for days and you know, developed a fever. And when she came back, she claimed that she had been taken by the fairies and that her fairy abductors had actually tried to court her, several of them at the same time. And there was a fight among them that ensued. And one of them placed his hands over her eyes and she heard this giant swarming as though it was a, a thousand buzzing flies, which you'll see not only in modern day alien abductee cases, but also in some psychedelic experiences, this buzzing sound. And then when she returned, she had abilities of being a prophetess and also of physical healing. So for the rest of her life, she lived off of those abilities that she had of being able to cause miraculous things to happen. Hmm. Well, that might be an example for the next book. You got taste, you got smell, and now you got to get that buzzing hearing thing going. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to zig when everybody thought it's because that's what everybody thought I'd do is they thought ah. I'd do the, the sound thing. I'm like, I'm going to zig when everybody thinks I'm going to zag instead. So <laughs> but yeah, that's definitely on the table. I've obviously thought about it. And, you know, it's come up enough times that I think it's worth looking into further. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Solidify your place as the five cents guru of the paranormal experience. <laughs> no, don't ask me to write a book on touch. That's going to get a little bit lewd. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Maybe hey. this was the book on touch. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Another thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap this up, because you are known for having so many sources, and we've talked about people like Charles Ford and Jacques Vallée. We know some of the big names, but who are some of your favorite, lesser-known compilers of weird stories or researchers in this realm that just aren't getting the credit they deserve? 
That's a great question. Someone who everybody should be aware of is an academic who I don't think necessarily wants to conflate his name with his website's name, so I'll just give the website name, but it's called Dr. Beachcombing's Bizarre History Blog. Incredibly well-sourced academic. If you could get him on the show, it would be quite the coup. I've actually Mm. approached him myself about being on some different shows, and he always seems to sort of clam up. But he has not only released that, but also some fairy scholarship as well under his actual name. And it's all just absolutely top-notch stuff with a definite sort of fairy bent to it. Someone else who I think deserves a lot more love than they get is a good friend of mine, Timothy Renner, who really sort of helped me to reappreciate the sort of legend tripping slash urban legend examinations of certain areas, but simply because he's such a good researcher and is a real inspiration in terms of the way that he absolutely, you know, 100% digs in and really is able to uncover some stuff. For example, first time I heard him was on an interview on uh, Where Did the Road Go? This is a podcast that I'm on relatively regularly. And he actually was dispelling all sorts of myths about his area and actually was able to track down public record to prove that there wasn't an insane asylum that had burned down in this particular location. (laughs) So really dispelling a lot of that stuff from a really pragmatic attitude. Someone who is a great unsung researcher who I think deserves a lot more love is Eddie Bullard, who is a ufologist who compiled at the time an absolutely comprehensive collection of alien abductions that is currently out of print, but if you look for it, it's called The Measure of a Mystery. You can probably find it through your local library, interlibrary exchange. And then someone who I think deserves a lot of love outside fairy lore is Catherine Briggs, who compiled a lot of fairy lore and was sort of on the cutting edge of fairy lore renaissance that you see in the 70s and and 80s as well. She did some great work. Very cool. Always love to give some credit to these unsung heroes, and I know you like to as well. But dude, it is about that time you wrote another great book, three in a row. Obviously, you work hard and have a lot of discipline to be so consistent, and I'm envious of that quality. It is not easy. Remind the people about these books and anything else you got going on so they can dig deeper into what you do. So I have three books. A Trojan Feast, The Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. The second book is The Brimstone Deceit, which is all about supernatural smells. It's called An In-Depth Examination of Supernatural Scents, Otherworldly Odors, and Monstrous Miasmas, which is looking at a bunch of different scents that occurred in different supernatural cases. And then this one, Thieves in the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abduction. All three are available from both Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Or, you know, always encourage if you can buy it somehow through your brick-and-mortar retailer or to ask your brick-and-mortar retailer to order it for you. That's always, you know, I'm always a big fan of physical stores. I have a blog at joshuacutchen.com. I'm trying to get a little bit more regular with that. I do. I just put up a blog the other day. Hooray! Yeah. You know, whenever I'm involved in my books, I'm really sort of focusing on that. So, but I'm trying to blog a little bit more on there. But you can also find links to all my interviews and my books and even some of my music on there. Speaking of interviews, I'm a regular on Where Did the Road Go with Soraya Azkaf. And you can find me on there from time to time doing roundtables or helping conduct interviews as well. Beautiful. Well, man, you are a beast of the best kind, one of my favorite guests on these subjects, and I'm sure we'll do it again. Until then, take care out there. Thanks so much, Greg. You got it. Oh, sweet snells of the Ozarks, people. Mark us down for a big win with Joshua Cutchin. A finer-than-fine return to paranormal topics for THC. 
I always describe the show as conspiracy and paranormal, but generally were super tilted towards the conspiracy side. Though I did set out to replace both Alex Jones and George Norrie, we've been pretty light on the paranormal side for a while. Occult and esoteric might have even surpassed paranormal at this point, but it's all in the soup. And this was a great paranormal podcast, if I've ever heard one. Josh's books are all really great, and I find them to be a breath of fresh air in a fairly stale realm of study. I do wish we had more like him in the mix, but right now he's the best paranormal writer that I know. He brings in scientific explanations that might account for some cases. He doesn't really have blinders on for any one explanation. He's an honest guy. As he said, he's also a Christian, so he has a lot of knowledge on the spiritual side of things as well. And for those who say that I don't have Christians on, let Josh be Exhibit A. I don't mind having Christian guests. I just don't want to cover or discuss their Christianity necessarily. I'm sure a lot of my guests are also football fans. I don't ask them about that because it's not relevant to the topic and if I had a guest who was a football fan that needed to make every single topic about football, I'd shy away from them too. Regardless, all I'm saying here is that I think Josh being Christian is the context that makes him knowledgeable about elements such as that Lilith archetype. And I find that pretty interesting. The religious stuff is a bigger issue in the conspiracy realm when everything has to come back to Armageddon and the fallen angels. Anyway, I've been reading a little more Charles Fort and Jacques Vallée recently because I didn't really grow up reading them. I've read a couple of each of their books at this point, but they are really prolific in these weird areas. And I do get a little frustrated that I can't find those types of writers in these realms today. I guess I have a little what else is there to say kind of attitude about paranormal encounters. I love hearing the stories, but when it comes to what they are and what they mean, a lot of conversations sound similar. It's really hard to find unique approaches into this stuff, and Josh has done it three times already. Nick Redfern, of course, has done a lot of great stuff too. Mike Clellan, a couple of others. But highbrow paranormal is sort of lacking, if you ask me. So this was fun, and I thank Josh for his contributions and for his time. In higher side news, there is going to be a little gap in shows again, because my guest for today, the show that was going to get me started at a good pace in October, well, that got pushed back a week. So I'm going to do what I can to turn it over quickly. And I'm still trying to do those alternative energy ether science shows that I mentioned, but some of those potential guests are not wanting to come on for some reason. And I'm going to keep trying to make that happen too. Might be closer to November. The calendar fills up fast around here. But if you liked the first hour with Josh today, sign up for the Higher Side Chats Plus. Get the full episodes of THC for just eight bucks a month. It's what you tip a waitress, and I think I'm serving you up so much more. HiresideChatsPlus.com slash subscribe to sign up and all your wildest dreams will come true. In this plus portion, we talked about the idea that King Henry I was replaced as a child. Perhaps paranormal entities have infiltrated our power centers. You know how I feel about that. 
we got into where some of the more modern encounters break from traditional cases. We talked about Sasquatch cases of child abduction, fairies and the missing 411 solution, the psychedelic connection, why we need more shamans, all that good stuff. And you know, these are a few of my favorite things. I think they're yours too. And this wraps up another month for me. I think I should get a pretty decent report card, right? Joshua Cutchin, Brooks Agnew, Charlie Robinson, Carl Abrahamson, and Chris Bennett. Marijuana, magic, the octopus of global control, the hollow earth, and paranormal kidnappings. I am nothing if not diverse, right? I've gotten a few emails about the lack of diversity on THC, and I think that I just made my case. Yeah, all five are straight white males, but subject-wise, we're out there. I'm kidding. And hey, I just have on the guests who write the good books. I don't even know what they look like half the time. But I guess before I step deeper in it, I'm just going to get out of here. Great stuff planned for October. Tell your friends. I'll see you then. Your move, fairies, aliens, demons, and other worldly takers of children. Your fucking Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was light coming down from the sky I don't know who Must be those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light put people uptight Leave blue-green footprints that glow in the dark I hope they get home you please take me along I won't do anything wrong hey Mr. Spaceman won't you please take me along the high side woke up this morning I was feeling quite weird I had Lights in my beard, my toothpaste was smeared. I opened my window, they'd written my name. Said, So long, we'll see you again. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please? Please take me along the high side.
Ha 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 ha. 